Really, how are you guys doing? Are you guys, how many of you guys were here last week? You guys remember what we talked about last week? Yes. What, what did we talk about, Paul? No gods other than me. We talked about the Ten Commandments. So guess what we're talking about today? Commandment number two. I'm so excited that you guys are back because how many of you guys, honestly, now, like straight honest, don't look at your neighbor and pretend like you have to be holy. How many of you guys get excited about the Ten Commandments? A a couple of you guys. That's good. That's good. That's more than I thought would get excited about the Ten Commandments. Because honestly, right, the Ten Commandments, it doesn't, it doesn't evoke a lot of like, yeah, commandments. <laughs> right? I mean, how many of you guys, honestly, if you think about it, when you think of the Ten Commandments, you think of an old guy with a beard and a couple of stone tablets, right? <laughs> Maybe you guys think it's, it's a bunch of rules. Maybe, I don't know if you're like me, but the Ten Commandments, you have to read them in King James. Right? It has to be read in that kind of old-timey English. Like, reading it in today's English just doesn't do it justice. Anyone, anyone tracking with me here? And then how many of you guys, and this is the icing on the cake, you have to read it with the voice of God, or what you think is the voice of God. Like, even, even when I read it just in the Bible quietly, you know, it's not just, and if I read it in the King James, it's not just, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, but it's, thou shalt not make unto thee. It has to be all dramatic, right? That's what I think of when I think of the Ten Commandments. I think it's kind of old, it's archaic, it's for way back then. Maybe it applies to me, maybe it doesn't. Today, that's what I kind of want to look at is how does it apply to me today? How, how does what was written thousands of years ago make sense in my life today? But I think some of the things that we have to get over is our own uh, impressions about the, first com- or the Ten Commandments and our own biases because if you're like me, you think of, you know, everybody knows of the Ten Commandments. You know, it's, it's, it's a part of our world's culture to the point that whether you go to church or not, whether you believe in God or not, whether you even believe there is a God or not, you've heard of the Ten Commandments. Right? It's part of American culture in that we are supposedly founded to be a Christian nation and that that's one of the things that, that we're founded on is, these, is the laws of the Ten Commandments, right? But if you look at what popular culture says about the Ten Commandments, you know, how many of you guys have seen that movie, The History of the World Part One by Mel Brooks, right? And, and you guys remember the Moses scene and the, and the Old Testament scene where, where Moses is talking to God and, and he comes out with the three stone tablets and he goes, the Lord has given us these 15 commandments. And then he drops one of the tablets and it breaks and then he goes, 10, 10 commandments. <laughs> Right, how many of you guys, that, that's the image that I get when I think of the Ten Commandments, when you first say that. But here's the thing. I think the world in general, even Christians, even people that believe in God, don't necessarily understand the Ten Commandments. I don't think we really get what God was saying with it and why he said it and why it's important to us today. In fact, I was looking for some kind of video clip of popular culture of how I believe people view the Ten Commandments. And this is what I came up with. So if you want to take a look, this is, what, this is how I believe popular culture and the world in general views the Ten Commandments. Run, cover of Graven Images. Ah, good evening, Homer the Thief. How is business? Been a little slow these past few months. Not much to steal in the desert, you know. Ah, do not worry, my friend. I figure we'll be wandering out here. Another two weeks tops. 
Hey, good evening, Zohar the Adulterer. My wife sends her warmest regards. Oh, yes. She's a good woman. Very good. Thank you, my lusty friend. <laughs> <laughs> Moses is back. Quick, everybody look busy. The Lord has handed down to us ten commandments by which to live. I will now read them in no particular order. Thou shalt not make any graven images. Oh, my God! Thou shalt not commit adultery. Ah, well, looks like the party's over. <laughs> hey, Moses, keep them coming. <laughs> Thou shalt not steal. Don't! <laughs> Sorry, Homer. Now, isn't that accurate in how we believe everyone views the Ten Commandments? Like, it's just, Israel was just there, they're cruising in the desert, then, then God gives us these laws, and then what does Zohar say? Oh, well, looks like the party's over. Like, everyone is having so much fun doing their thing. If you saw in the video clip, you know, people are, are fighting in the back, or people are stealing, or, or they're chasing women, and he goes, oh, well, the party's over. And I think that's the bias that we have, that these, these rules, these ten rules were written so that God could just give us these laws and make it tough on us or make it show us how bad we are and, and really take away our fun, right? Is it just me? It can be. It's okay. There's no right answer. Okay, I'm going to take that as you don't agree with me, but that's okay. <laughs> I will convince you that I am right. Uh, but the truth is, you know, God, who, who was the Ten Commandments written to? The Israelites, right? It's the, the very, in the beginning of uh, Exodus chapter 20, it says, I am the Lord your God who led you out of slavery from Egypt. It's written to a specific group of people that God led out of slavery, and it's his people. And so as, as we're looking at this, here's where I want to kind of change what, we're, what we view. It's written to them. It applies to us, but it was written to them specifically. And this is a group of people, if you remember, that saw the miracles, where they saw the things that God did. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They walked through on dry ground. They saw that the Red Sea closed back up again over the Egyptians and rescued them. You know, these are the guys that saw the 10 plagues with their own eyes. This is a group of people that knew who God was. Maybe they didn't have a relationship with him the same way that you and I do. I'm going to probably say they didn't, but they knew who God was. There's no doubt that they all saw the hand of God in miraculous ways that you and I probably will not see in our lifetime. And so when he's writing this, he's telling them, you already know who I am. You've already seen what I can do. You see my power, you see my might. And so when we're reading this, let's, let's look at it from that perspective a little bit more about you already know what I'm doing and who I am. So if I ask you the question now, so why did God write the 10 commandments? Why did he give them these rules? What would you say? Guidance, Guidance. excellent. Anybody else? Show, I'm sorry, show what? Show us we can't live up to his holy Show us that we can't live up to his holy standards, okay. Anybody else? Protection. Protection. Good. All these things are right. I think Pastor Carl said it last, last week very well, that he's like a loving father giving his, his kids these boundaries or these guidelines because he actually wants them to have the best life possible. He wants them to have a great, rich, and satisfying life. And so he gives them these commandments and go, if you stay within these commandments, your life is going to be great. You know, the first four that Pastor Carl said last week, the first four are talking about how to worship God. And then the last six we're talking about how to uh, treat each other. And if we, if we remember from last week, right, all the law of Moses and the prophets can be summed up with two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and strength. And the second one, which is equally as important, is love your neighbor as yourself. 
So as we're looking at this, I want, I want us to look at the second commandment through that lens of God who wants his people to succeed, who wants his people to have a great life, and he's doing this because he loves them, not because he's trying to, to show them that, hey, my, the party's over and you can't have any fun, you just gotta listen to what I'm saying. But here's the thing. What's a graven image? Anything? Money. Motorcycles. Yeah, Pastor Frank, you heard that? No good. You know, we were talking about this in, in my mini church this last week because I said, oh, I have to, I have to teach on the second commandment. And, and you know, um, when we get together, like we knew Pastor Carl wasn't going to be here because he had to do his cousin's wedding. You know, we're talking about, oh, you know, he's like, who wants to do the second commandment, right? And everyone's head kind of goes down because we're like, second commandment. No, you know. I'm holding out for the fourth commandment. But... <laughs> Second commandment, so they go, how about you, Scott? And I'm like, yeah, graven images. What's a graven image? And so we're talking about this in mini church, and we're saying, hey, what is a graven image? And one person goes, you know, like something that's dead, like of the grave, you know, which makes sense to me. And then her husband goes, no, I think it's more like an engraved image, like something that's engraved. I thought, oh, that makes so much more sense, like an engraved image, you know, not just, does, that made sense to me. And, and so... Like reading this, I'm like, okay, so don't make an engraved image. I can get that. But if we read it in today's translation, we read it in the Bible that we normally read out of the New Living, it says that you shouldn't make any idols. Does that clear it up in our head? Oh, good, good. Because when I think of an idol, I think of American Idol, right? We should not make an American Idol. There will be no more singing tonight. But that's what we think of, right? Or we think, if, you, if you're like me, you think of maybe like that Brady Bunch goes to Hawaii, right? And, and one of the Bradys gets that little tiki and takes it back. Or you think of a, a little statue, a golden calf, or what have you. You know, you think all these things come into your head. Of it's something small and tangible. It could be like this, and you carry it around. Maybe it's a lucky penny or something like that. But then you start thinking, well, is that really applicable to me? Am I walking around with a little golden calf in my pocket? <laughs> Probably not. Most of us aren't, I would dare say, in this room. So I, I really had to think, well, what is, what is why, why would God say this? What is the purpose for him saying not to make any idols? And I think the first reason why he says it is because no matter what kind of image we create, even if it's a, trying to create a good image of God, is going to pale in comparison to God. Like if I asked you, can you draw me a picture of God, what would you guys start drawing? Anybody? What was that? You draw Charlton Heston for God? He looks like God. Okay, okay. That, that's not my first picture, but <laughs> to each his own, I guess. <laughs> okay, I'm just kidding. Not to each his own. You listen to me. <laughs> but, but really, what, what would we draw that could accurately depict what God is? You know, I mean, you could, you could draw maybe the universe. Or, well, I don't know if you could draw the universe. You need a real big piece of paper. <laughs> But if you drew like you know, a picture of the mountains, that might be part of what God is and what God created. You know, maybe you draw a picture of something powerful. I, I, don't, I can't think of anything real powerful. The seven wonders of the world. But you know, whatever you draw, it's not gonna be anywhere near what God is, right? You know, I have a, I have a daughter who's almost three years old. If I said, hey, draw a picture of dad, what would she draw? She'd probably draw like some kind of circle thing that represents my head and maybe a couple of dots to be my eyes. And she'd go, look, this is you. And I'd say, yes, that looks just like me. But the reality is, it doesn't look anything like me. I'm not drawn with purple crown with purple eyes, right? I'm just, whatever we can think of, it's not gonna be big enough. 
You know, how many of you guys, well, you don't have to answer this question if you don't want to, but you guys watch TV? Did anyone here watch TV? Oh, okay, good, we're all on the same plane, mostly. You know, I've seen a lot of commercials lately for things like Match.com or eHarmony or Christian Mingle. You know, you guys see these commercials on and they say, you know, four out of five relationships start on, online or whatever. And, and one of my friends, um, you know, did the whole online dating thing and a couple of them got married. So if that's your thing, more power to you, go ahead. But, you know, he came up to our house and we're like, how does this thing work? And at this point, I'm already married, so I'm not in the market. I'm just curious because I'm not really sure how it works. And he goes, well, you create a little profile. You put your little picture there and you write some things about you. Like, I like to dance. I like scary movies, whatever. And then it tries to match you up with someone who has similar interest in you. But here's the thing, right? That picture and that little description of you isn't you. It's a, it's, it's a representation of you, but even that's a poor representation because we all know we're much more complex than the four or five things that we list as our likes, right? Like I have a friend on the mainland who did this and, and um, on her profile she put loves to travel and someone else on their profile put loves to travel. And so they ended up meeting and she's like, you know, she's super excited because she loves to travel. And she goes, where have you gone? Like, you know, and, she, and she, he goes, what do you mean? He goes, you love to travel, where have you been to? And he goes, I haven't really been anywhere. Like, in fact, until they started dating, he'd never even been on an airplane before, which in Hawaii sounds weird because we have to fly to go everywhere, right? But on the mainland, you could probably drive really far and not go anywhere. But her whole thing is she goes, well, you don't really love to travel. You like the idea of traveling, which is a big difference. It's a misrepresentation to her. Whereas, you know, we go, this is why it's so important that we're not trying to create this image of God in our heads because one, we, we misrepresent and then two, we let our imagination go and this is how we think God should be and that may not be how God is. Does that make sense? And so he says, don't create these images, don't create these, these replicas of what you think I am because you're not even gonna get close. And then second, of course, by all means, do not bow down to them. God is saying, you've seen me in the desert. You've seen what I can do. You've seen my handiwork. I wanna have a relationship with you. You don't need to try and pretend to create something to have that relationship with me. Let's just have that relationship. And so, you know, if you think about what this is about, he's saying, yeah, you can't see me, but you know I'm around. You know what I'm doing. Hebrews 11.1 1 says that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You know, God's saying, just because you can't see me, that doesn't mean that I'm not real and that I don't exist. In fact, he's saying, that's what faith is. Faith is actually believing in something you cannot see. And in, in Hebrews 11.6, it says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So we need to have that faith that God is someone in our lives. Now, here's what God desires. Here's what I believe God desires. He wants to have that relationship with you, that personal relationship with you. That it's not about knowing God or knowing, I'm sorry, it's not about knowing about God, it's about knowing God. You know, I, um, I have a history degree and so I love history books. I think they're kind of fun to read and that may make some of you guys, you know, your eyes start glazing over. But if I read like 10 history books about Abraham Lincoln, that doesn't mean I know Abraham Lincoln. I may know about him, I may know about things that he likes or doesn't like and you know, all the Gettysburg Address and the Emancipation Proclamation, but that doesn't mean I know him. I think that's what God's saying too. He goes, get to know me, not an idea that you have of me or not some kind of uh, imagination that you have of me or an inclination about me. Get to know who I am, get to know my heart. And I think that's the difference between a religion and a relationship. If I asked my friend Clinton, do we have a religion or a relationship, Clinton would say, it wasn't a yes or no question. <laughs> relationship, that, thank you, Renee. Renee and I have a relationship. 
We're friends. We know each other. We call each other on the phone or we email each other, right? It's, it's two ways. It's not just about me checking things off the list to make sure that we're still good or making sure that, that I know about Renee. I want to know Renee. And so that's the key to this whole thing about not making any idols. God wants to know you, and he wants you to know him in a personal, real way. So with that said, you guys have, uh, you know, you guys have all heard of, of the Apostle Thomas, right? What's his nickname? Doubting Thomas, right? And why is he nicknamed that? Because he doubted. That's right. It's not a trick question. That's exactly, you know, sometimes nicknames are real simple and they're meaningful because they're true. That's why people call me Handsome Scott. But, you know, <laughs> Doubting Thomas is there because he doubted. And if you don't know the story, the story is after, you know, the apostles, there are 12 apostles and they were Jesus' followers. And Jesus died. He got crucified. He got sacrificed. And then God raised him from the dead, and he, God, I'm um, sorry, Jesus appeared to some of these apostles. And so they're telling Thomas, like, wow, we saw Jesus. He's alive. Like, he said he would be alive. We saw him. And Thomas says, well, I'm not, I'm not going to believe it until I can see him. I'm not going to believe it unless I can stick my hands through, I mean, stick my finger through the hole in his hands and, and put my, my finger through in the hole in his side. And then, of course, Jesus does appear to Thomas a little later. And, and Jesus, in all his grace and compassion, goes, Thomas, do you, do you believe me now? Do you want to stick your finger through the holes in my hands? And, and Thomas, you know, goes, you know, I don't need to. I'm sorry, Lord, whatever. And Jesus just goes, hey, you believe because you see. But blessed are those that believe that don't see. And so as we're looking at this, you know, I mean, I think our human nature, that's what we do as humans, right? I'll believe it when I see it. You prove it to me, then I'll believe it. But here's the thing. God isn't asking for blind trust. He's not asking for blind faith. You know, for, for instance, for looking at these Israelites as they're going through the desert, not only did they see the plagues, not only did they see the miracles, but the Bible tells us that God had put a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud to guide them. That there's actually a pillar of cloud that went before them, and when it stopped, they would stop and make camp. When it moved, they would move. There's a pillar of fire there at night that would actually keep the camp lit up. And so the question for you guys as you're thinking about this, and, and again, this is one of those things that just ask yourself in your head, what are the pillars of fire and the pillar of clouds in your life that you can go, that was God, that God did direct my path, that maybe God opened the right door or he closed the right door or God guided someone into your life when you needed encouragement or a friend or God answered a prayer? You know, what are the things that you can look back at and you go, oh, I know God is real because he did this in my life. And for a lot of you, it might be those praise reports that we read about every week in the, on the prayer cards, you know. We love to read those. It encourages us to know that God is still doing, answering prayers in our church today. But really, what is it in your life that you can think of that God is doing so much in your life that you just go, oh yeah, God's real. Because I think that's what God tries to do for us. He tries to put these pillars of cloud, these pillars of fire, you know, in our lives, specifically to boost our faith, specifically to increase it and make us go, oh yeah, I, I remember when. I don't have to doubt anymore because I know that this happened. And so as you guys, if you guys have your notes and you guys want to write some things down, I would challenge you, write it down. Talk about it in your mini church. You know, get encouragement from it because some of you guys, especially you guys that go to mini church, you know, with your friends, you probably know some things that other people overlook and you're probably not looking at, but they'll help you out. Um, and so anyway, go ahead and do that. Just write some down. I'll give you some time. Go ahead. But as we're looking forward, so I'm still struggling, or I'm still struggling with, with this concept of graven images and idols, because I think, for me, again, in my head, it's still hard to conceptualize, 
Because again, it's, it's not something that I deal with on a daily basis, or I think I don't deal with on a daily basis. I don't idolize things in that, like little objects, you know? Anyone? You don't have to answer, never mind. Nobody does that, right? Graven images, no one graves an image. So I was thinking, what is a better word that I can use that doesn't sound like so holy or doesn't sound so Christian-y or doesn't sound so biblical that, that I can wrap my head around? And here's what I came up with, distractions. I think an idol is a distraction in our lives. Something that makes us take our eyes just a little bit off of God or a lot off of God. Something that may even be good that if God is here and it just takes us just a little bit off over time, that angle gets bigger and bigger, right? And, and we get further and further away from God. And so I would say, what are the distractions in your life that you know are taking you away from God? You know, it might be something, again, it might be something unhealthy, like it could be TV. For me, I probably watch way too much TV. It could be something good even. I mean, not every distraction is a bad thing unless we allow it to become a distraction and allow it to become bad, right? I think we can have healthy things in our life that turn unhealthy if it's not put in its proper place. And so I thought I'd show you a couple of distractions of things that distract me so that you can get an idea of things I'm talking about. So here's, here's the first thing that distracts me all the time. <laughs> this is my daughter, Casey. Uh, she, she'll be three next month, as a matter of fact. Um, this is, we took it, some pictures right before Easter. That's why she's wearing bunny ears, but she's a big distraction in my life. And then here's the second distraction. This is Taylor, and she'll be one in September. And I can tell that you guys are now distracted by their cuteness. <laughs> Sometimes I wonder, yeah, how did, how did I produce such cute offspring? Handsome <laughs> Scott. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to say it's probably my wife's good genes in that because I don't think I can make cute babies like that. Well, obviously I can't do it on my own, but. <laughs> my wife had a lot to say about that. But you know, here's the thing. Kids are wonderful. Kids are great. No one would say, oh, kids are such a bad thing. But can they become a distraction? Absolutely. You know, my wife and I will, this year, um, next month, we'll have been married for six years, which seems real small compared to the 40-year guys here, but it'll take, it'll take me another, you know, couple years to get to 40, so I can't compete with that. But we had, you know, we're going to be married next month for six years, and um, actually, Casey was born on our anniversary, so now we just never celebrate anniversaries anymore. But I can also never forget it because it's Casey's birthday. But, you know, we're talking because when we first got married, you know when you first get married, you have all these dreams and plans for your future. I want to start a family. I want to go traveling. I want to make these memories. I want to do this and this and this. And so we're just kind of talking. You know, what, are, are, we, are we where we want to be? Are we heading toward the right goals? Are we doing what we want, you know, what we said we did, we wanted to do five years ago? And so we're just kind of talking and we're just kind of figuring out, hey, we're not exactly where we want to be. In fact, we discovered that after we had our second child, we poured so much energy and love into our children, we actually kind of stopped paying that much attention to each other. And that doesn't mean we didn't love each other, it doesn't mean we didn't have a good marriage, it just means we put a lot more effort into that than to our relationship with each other. And our kids became a distraction to our marriage. Does that, you don't have to answer, but I've heard, because I've heard it's real common, but everybody I say that to this gives me that look like, oh my gosh, you're the worst person in the world. <laughs> So if, if that does happen, if you heard about it, if you know someone that has happened to, then raise your hand and make me feel better about myself. There you go, whether it was you or not. Um, but you know, I, I think it's one of those things where you always gotta check yourself because even the good things can become a distraction and be, can, can become, in our case, an idol that takes you away from what God is doing or what he wants to do. 
you know, Pastor Tammy said last week, someone said that the best advice that they heard was the best gift you can give your children is to love your spouse because children need a stable family. They want to have that stability. And if you love your spouse, it'll pour out into your children. They'll see that. They'll model, you know, they'll see the model that you have and they'll see how you handle things. I'm going to say it's the same thing with God. You know, the best advice I can give you is to, to love God and put him into everything. And in doing so, it's going to pour out into everything else. It's going to be a part of everything else. If you guys are here last week, Pastor Carl said, God shouldn't be at the top of your priority list. He should be your priority list. And that's what I was really thinking about. Like, what does that look like? Because again, in my head, I'm trying to conceptualize what does it look like to, be, to have God be my priority list and not be just on top of it. And so here's, here's something I came up with and you guys can agree or disagree, but this is what my, my priority list used to be. If, if you look at it, this is a priority list. Does this look like anybody else's priority list, right? One, God, two, wife, three, family, four, friends, five, work. Does everyone would kind of say, yeah, this is a pretty decent priority list. Maybe you change some things here and there. You put work above your friends or whatever. But by and large, we can all agree it's a pretty standard, straightforward list, right? Yeah, I would say, I would say so too. But then so, but, but Pastor Carl said, don't make God the top of your priority list. Make him your priority list. And so I was thinking, how do, what does that look like? And here's what I came up with. This is what I think it looks like if God is your priority list. Now all of a sudden, God's in the middle and he just is a part of everything that I do. Right, so, so now you see it says wife plus God and family plus God and God plus work and God plus friends. And in this case, then God just permeates through everything that I do. And if I keep him there in the center, then everything I do, he'll be a part of. Thank you, thank you. you got, can you leave it up there in case people wanna write it down? I think it's good if you're taking notes. But, but the truth is, that's what it has to be. Because if everything else, everything else becomes a distraction, even just a little thing or even just a good thing can easily, you can take God out of it. And God, that's what God's saying, don't do. He's saying, don't allow those distractions to take the place of me. Let's read a little further in Exodus 20, verse five. It says, you must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. Now here's, here's a key thing, God is a jealous God. And when we think of jealousy, it doesn't always put a good picture into our head, right? We think of maybe the jealous boyfriend who goes after somebody and breaks the car window or whatever. Or we think of, you know, my own feelings of jealousy when I, or, you know, Pastor Frank saying, oh, I've seen this guy in this Ducati and I felt like jealous that he had and I didn't have one. But why do people get jealous? What is it, you know, what, what is the root of this jealousy? Love. Desire, right, because we want, thank you, Troy and Justin, thanks for answering, because we want to be, whatever place we are in someone's life, we want to stay there, right, and, and we get jealous when we think something else is going to take that place, or something's going to supplant us, or move us out of where we think we should be. Anybody here watch The Voice? It's a, it's a reality show, or it's a, it's a singing competition, there's four judges. I know my wife has a tiny crush on Blake Shelton, who's... <laughs> who's a country singer if you don't know. You know, and, and she goes, oh, Blake's on TV, he's so funny, he has, he's so witty, and he has these blue eyes, and, and I can't compete with the blue eye thing. I'm Asian, I got brown eyes, man. I mean, <laughs> blue eyes is a dream of mine that I'm not gonna get. But if I ever started getting worried that he would start taking my place in her life, that's when the jealousy would come, right? If she started saying, you ought to start learning how to play country songs, or if she came home with a cowboy hat and said, why don't you try this on? I think it'll look cute. <laughs> then I'd start getting a little worried because I'd start thinking, what, what, what? You know, I mean, 
Why would I do that? And that's how I think God is. He's jealous for us. He wants to be in that spot in our life where he is our everything. And if anything comes between that, that's when God's gonna start getting jealous and start fighting for you. You know, if, if you're married here, and I'm married so I can explain this, but if, you're, if you make a commitment to somebody, like I made a commitment to my wife on our wedding day, we committed to each other. You know, that we're just gonna be the only ones for each other and nothing was gonna break that commitment. And here's the thing, there's a God out there who made that commitment to you before you had any idea of who he was. Before you knew him, before, in fact, the Bible says before you're even born in the book of Psalms, it says that God knew you even when, you're, when you were in your mother's womb. First, uh, first John 4:19 says that we love him, we love God, because he first loved us. And so God has already made that commitment to you. He's already promised himself to you. And all we, all we have to do and all he wants us to do is promise ourselves back to him. You know, he, he wanted us so badly that he didn't even spare anything, not even his own son. He sent Jesus to come and die and sacrifice himself so that you and I could have that relationship with God. Isn't that amazing? Now, when I look at this, when I think that's the second commandment, that excites me. To think that there's a God out there that is jealous of me, is jealous and he wants to be that part in, in, in my life so badly that he is willing to do everything, even giving up his own son. And so, as we're looking at this, as we're looking at this, this, this second commandment, you know, start thinking, what are the things, like, honestly, what are the things that I can start removing from my life or including God in my life to make sure that he's in that place because he desperately wants to be there. And there's no question of, of whether you should or you shouldn't. It's really God says, hey, make me your list. Make me your priority. Include me in everything. And I believe if, if you guys are honestly thinking about it, you know, he's gonna tell you, yeah, this, in this area, you might be doing fantastic. In this area, maybe not as much. You know, what are the things that, that we've allowed to become religious maybe even? Even what are the things that we've allowed to become unhealthy that used to be healthy and how do we get back there again? And then we're just gonna finish up with this section here. This is Exodus, we'll finish reading the uh, Exodus chapter 20 verse five. It says, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. So Jesus says, or I'm sorry, so God says that, that, the, that the sins of the parents are gonna be on their children, it's gonna affect their entire family to the third and fourth generations. But he says, for those that, that love me and obey my commands, he's gonna lavish love upon you. And so here's the, here's the biggest question of the whole day. What's in it for me? Why do I follow God? Why do I believe this commandment? Why do I, I wanna make it happen? Because I believe this commandment is a little different than the first commandment. You remember last week we talked about no other gods before me, right? That was commandment number one. And I think that's a pretty one. I think we can all, we get it. You know, it's kind of an internal thing. It's kind of making sure God's in the right spot. But commandment number two, which sounds very similar to number one, I really believe is an outward expression of commandment number one. So if I, if I had to differentiate between one and two, one is more internal, two is more external. And so one, or I'm sorry, so two without one doesn't really make sense. And if we don't have number one in its proper place, number two is gonna be kind of watered down and it's gonna be, uh, it's, not gonna, it's not gonna achieve its full results. So I think for us to really make this work, we have to have number one there first and number two right behind it so that we can make sure our outward expression of how we're worshiping God, how we're communing with God, our relationship with God 
is also in the right spot. Does that make sense? Good. So what's in it for us? Why do we want to do this? You know, I've, um, I've been in this church for, since I was in second grade. My parents brought me when I was in second grade. And so I've grown up seeing a lot of people. And on Saturday nights, they have a service here that normally some of the older generation tend to congregate to. You know, some of these people I've known almost literally my whole life, for at least 30 years of my life, I've known some of these people. And you know, I can tell you, some of these people that, that attend a Saturday night service, and I'm sure there are some of you here too, I'm not trying to exclude you guys, but you know, like I've, I've, I've watched them over the years. You've heard that phrase, caught, not taught. You know, things, not everything can be, can be taught, but you'll just catch on to things just as life happens, you know? They use that phrase a lot, especially with kids, right? Kids, you don't teach them how, how to do everything, but they watch their parents, and that's the model they have. You know, they catch on. They see what, what's happening. And so I can honestly say, having, having known some of these people in church for 30 years or whatever, that I've, I've watched them in a lot of situations. Uh, for the last 10 years, I've been on staff here, so I've seen even more about how people react to, to adversity, how they react in good times, how they react to hardships that come their way. And I can tell you, some of these, some of these kupuna, some of these older generation, man, they love Jesus. I mean, more so than they did 30 years ago, and some of them have been Christians for 60, 70 years. You know, what's in it for me? I want to be like them. I want to have the joy in the Lord. And they definitely have endured hardships. They definitely went through the rocky times. Some of them have lost spouses. Some of them have lost kids. Some of them have had brutal fights with people. And yet, they still love Jesus. You know, if, I, if I'm looking at what I want to do, I want to be that example to my kids. I want them to look up to me and, and find, you know, some good qualities in me that when they're looking for husbands, that they look for someone just like dad in a non-creepy way. <laughs> but really, right, I mean, after I said it, I thought That's, that was strange. Um, but I want them to look for someone that I believe is godly, that is righteous, that stands up for justice. You know, I want to model for them, uh, my wife and I, how we, how we handle fights and arguments. I, I want them to, to see that, yeah, you can fight, it's okay. I mean, it's not, you're gonna disagree from time to time. But how do you handle that? How do you walk away from that? Do you walk away from that angry? Do you walk away still loving each other? You know, that's the kind of things that I want to model. So I go like, what, what does this verse say? You know, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children, the entire family's affected. I believe that's true as well. You know, if, if, if there's a big sin in your life, whatever it is, it's gonna affect other people. Very rarely does sin just affect you. You know, it stretches out to people that care for you. It stretches out for, to people that you care for. And sometimes it goes on even to the third and fourth generation. But we're looking at this and we're kind of thinking, that sounds real harsh. Like, why, you know, like, does that mean that if I mess up, then that means my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren are going to be affected? Possibly. But if we look in Ezekiel, Pastor Tom and I were talking about this. Um, he, goes, I, he goes, you know, we, we looked at that and it sounds so harsh. But if we look in the book of Ezekiel, it says, what, you ask, doesn't the child pay for the parent's sins? No, for if the child does what is just and right and keeps my decrees, that child will surely live. The person who sins is the one who will die. The child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be, will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. So here, the Bible is saying in the book of Ezekiel, he writes down that everyone's kind of just responsible for their own selves. And so does that mean that, that what we read in Exodus is, is invalid? I don't think so. I think what it's telling you is that yeah, if you're rejecting God and you're living in this sin, it will affect people, it will affect your entire family. But everyone has a chance to get out of it. Everyone has a chance to say no 
and, and be righteous and, and affect their children in the positive way. In fact, in verse 23 of Ezekiel 18, it says, do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. And I think that's the beautiful part of it. Everyone has a chance to make right what was wrong and to live. You know, we say this verse, um, John 10, 10, we say, it around, we say it a lot around here. And it simply says, the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And my purpose, Jesus' purpose, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. And I believe that's what God wants for all of us, to have that rich and satisfying life. And how do we do that? One, we put God first. We put God above everything else. And then two, we don't have anything that distracts us or we eliminate our distractions and allow us to really just focus and have God be a part of everything. If we read um, Exodus chapter 20, verse 6 in the Message Version, a different translation of the Bible, it says, but I'm unswervingly loyal to the thousands who keep me and my commandments. So here God's saying that he's unswervingly loyal. He's on your side. He wants you to succeed. He wants to have that relationship with you. And he's going to be so loyal to you when you keep his commandments and when you keep, and you keep loving him. So as we walk out of here today, and we're almost done, we'll wrap up with this. A couple of things I just really want to challenge you to do. One is to try and really take note of what are the pillars of fire and the pillars of cloud that you have seen in your life. And the reason why I want to do that is because there's going to be times when, when things go tough. There's going to be times, the dry times in your life when you may not, you may be wondering, where is God? I don't see God anywhere. But if we keep a record of this, if we keep track of this, it gives you something to look back on that you go, oh yeah, God is faithful. God is still alive. I may not be able to see the big picture. Right? Pastor Carl last week said that we only see that snapshot. God sees the whole movie wherever you're at. And, and we may not see it all, but God knows it all. And so when the times get tough, where's our faith going to go? Are we going to trust him? Are we going to trust in our own ability and try and do it ourselves? I believe that we have to just place our trust in God regardless of our circumstance. And sometimes it'll help us a lot if we, re if we write down the victories, the successes, the pillars of clouds and the pillars of fires in our life. So I'd like to challenge you guys to do that. And then the second big one is just what are the distractions of your life? You know, what are the healthy ones and the unhealthy ones? What are the things that you know that you need to eliminate? What are the things that you know that you don't need to eliminate? You just have to make sure you bring God into it. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much just for your word, just for your loving kindness, that, that, that you give us chances to, to be your followers. You give us chances time and time again, and you say that you're not going to hold it against us. In fact, that you want us to have rich and satisfying lives. And so, Father, this morning, as we're just wrapping up, I pray that you would just bring to us, to all of us, just the times when, when you were that pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud in our lives. Father, that, that the times that you did direct us, the times that we were walking so close with you that we absolutely knew for certain that you were there. And God, I pray that you would just allow us to write them down, to reflect on them, to remember those times. And Father, I just pray for tons of more times like that in our lives as we need it. That as we need the extra sense of encouragement, that you'd be there to give it to us. As we need the extra booth of faith, that you would give it to us. No matter what our circumstances, God, I pray that you would show yourself true time and time again. And then God, the second part is just, just show us, just bring to our minds what are the distractions that we need to eliminate? What are the things that we need to give up to you? Where are the areas that we're doing fantastic that you're saying, I'm so proud of you. I'm so, I'm so glad that you're my children. Good job. God, I pray that you would just give us those thoughts as well. And Father, I also just pray just for all of us in this room that we'd walk out of here feeling uplifted and encouraged, knowing that there is a God who is jealous for us, who does love us, who does care for us, that did not even spare his own son, but sent his son to come and die for us so that we might know you.